0: welcome to park avenue synagogue podcasts we have a very exciting conversation uh, today with charles bronfman and jeffrey solomon uh, the authors of the art of giving where the soul meets a business plan it's a book that was sent to me um, by the authors some time ago and i said to myself wow, if only I could get um, Charles Brompton and Jeffrey Solomon on the podcast, what a get that would be. And that's exactly what we have going on um, for the next few minutes to talk to them about their vision and goals um, and history of philanthropy um, from two people who have committed much of their lives um, to the Jewish community and the Jewish philanthropic community. Um, I'm also particularly excited about this conversation because um, one of the books that I one day hope to write uh, and haven't gotten around to yet is what they didn't teach me in rabbinical school. And um, one of the things they didn't teach me in rabbinical school is um, how to ask people for money and what goes through the mind of a philanthropist when they're deciding what causes to support what causes not to support whether it's their synagogue whether it's a uh, movement whether it's diaspora israel relations or a social service agency any number of worthy, worthy causes um and and how it is um that the jewish professional community i being a proud member of that um of that sector um can work creatively and collaboratively with the philanthropic community to forward the agenda of the Jewish community. So I feel this is just a, a, a exciting opportunity to um, speak to two people and ask them all the questions I always wanted to ask. And hopefully we'll all learn a little bit about the minds of the great philanthropists of our time. Um, in a way, neither gentleman needs any introduction, but just in case you you don't know, M- Mr. Bronfman retired as an active businessman in 2001, following a 50-year career with the Seagram Company. In 1996, he moved to the United States from Montreal um, and was named founding chair of United Jewish Communities, which we now know as JFNA. Um, he is holds honorary doctorates from universities in Israel, the United States and Canada, and continues to be active in philanthropic initiatives. And there's much more to say, but we're short on time. Dr. Jeffrey Solomon is senior advisor to Chasbro Investments, the family office of Charles Brompton. For two decades, he was the president of the Andrea and Charles Brompton Philanthropies, a group of foundations operating in Canada Israel and the United States founding and operating programs, including, listen to this list, Birthright Israel, Reboot, Historic Canada, Karev Educational Ventures, and Slingshot. He's chair of Leading Edge, an organization that I'm working with, aimed at talent acquisition and retention in the Jewish community and co-chair of foundation work here in the United States, as well as in Israel. He's authored many articles um, and serves served as adjunct professor in the master's and doctorate programs of NYU School of Social Work. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you so much for being on Park Avenue Synagogue podcast. If I'm speaking quickly because I'm giddy with excitement at what's about to come. Um, Charles, the name of the book is The Art of Giving, Where the Soul meets a business plan right. and I'm just wondering if you could tell me what does that sentence mean where the soul meets a business plan and what maybe the origin of this book is that you and Jeff wrote
1: well, by the way I would like to first of all say thank you to you for having us uh, today uh, I also would like to uh, pose a question that you posed in your introduction I remember asking my father who was a Wonderful philanthropist. One day, uh, how he decided uh, to give to this and to that and not to give to the other thing, and he just looked at me, smiled sweet, and he said, "You'll learn." That was how I learned about philanthropy. Uh, in answer to your question, the art of giving is an art. There are a lot of scientific things, but I also remember my dad said that the art of making whiskey. Is an art. It is an art. So there are many arts and philanthropy is one. The soul meets the business plan. There are two parts to philanthropy, the heart and the hand. We decided that we did not want to do anything proactively in philanthropy that didn't hit us right in the heart. That we really, really were taken by it. But then the question was: how do you do a business plan and how do you uh, measure. And I think it was Jeff who decided that there was nothing that could not be measured. People would say, well, if you give money, you never know what's going to happen with it. And the question is, in anything, what are your objectives and how do you reach them? And then how do you say whether you have or how do you find out whether you reach them or not?
0: Okay, and so and and Jeff, let me uh, turn it to you because it sounds like in your role you are the shadkon, the matchmaker between the the heart and the head here um, of of bringing uh, these two together towards um, leveraging philanthropic passion towards a business plan. How how, what is that art to you, Jeff? Well, it it it
2: begins with the heart, and and. If I go back 26 years, when Charles's late wife uh, Andy and Charles and I started to work together, we spent months trying to figure out what what made each of us tick. We developed games. We we developed ways of of looking at um, what spoke to us passionately, and, and that's terribly important um, in philanthropy because. Um, it, this is not a one and done business. Uh, things take time and and one has to be sustained and and sustainment um really comes from satisfaction. And so the heart part of it um is is critical, as is the head part of it. You know, when 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 we started birthright Israel, um one of the questions was, oh, how can you, you know, how can you measure Jewish identity? The goal of the program was increase, increasing Jewish identity, increasing connection to Israel, and increasing connection to the Jewish people. And working with the, the social scientists at Brandeis University, we, we worked through what does Jewish identity mean and, and what piece of it is cognition, what you know, what piece of it is emotion, what you feel, and what piece of it is behavior, what you do. And those three things could be measured. So we really, um, and, and you know, one of the outcomes um, is that birthright is the most studied program in the history of Jewish education. And it is amazing how much we know about the 800,000 participants.
0: Right. So, what what is just we're talking about birthright? I'm going to pivot to birthright. Um, Charles, when you um, who whose idea was birthright, and and what what's its sort of origin story? Was was, was that uh, how, how did it come about?
1: Well, it came about from as Jeff is wont to say, uh, my losing a lot of money and time and effort on a project. Uh, We worked with uh, all the initials, UJA, your movement, uh, reform movement, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And our idea was to increase the number of youngsters going to Israel in the summertime. And what we didn't know was that our partners weren't that interested in increasing the numbers. What you folks were doing was taking the The profits from this uh, trip to Israel thing and using it for youth programming, which was fine. Only we didn't know that. That wasn't our objective. Our objective was to increase numbers. So we were about to stop it. Uh, And then Michael Steinhardt said to me one day in Jerusalem, uh, there's a project that Yossi Balin, who at that time was deputy minister, I think, of finance. In the government, and one of Shimon Peres's close advisors, uh, that he had proposed to uh, Michael about giving all 17 year old kids throughout the world vouchers for a trip to Israel. Huh? He said, What do you think of that? And I said, Well, it's an audacious idea, but it'll also break the financially the Jewish world. That was the beginning of our negotiations. And uh, Jeff, uh, And Yitz Greenberg, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, who was running Michael's foundation at the time, uh, joined in and we negotiated for a year. We did not bother with uh, talking with the government of Israel. We did not worry about the federations. We just figured this is what we're gonna do. And we decided it would be one-third, one-third, one-third financially: government of Israel, philanthropists and federations around the world, and that's the way it was going to be, which is also pretty darn audacious all by itself. Uh, we were very, very lucky we hired uh, the best civil servant uh, in Israel, who had twice been the uh, Director General of the Education Department of the government, who had also have been the Director General of the Jewish Agency, so we used something about the diaspora. He thought this was the most important thing that was on the, anybody's agenda. And he came, his name was Shimshon Choshani. Shimshon came to New York. We thought we were interviewing him. Didn't turn out that way. He was interviewing us, very Israeli. But Shimshon was, without him, I don't think there would have been a birthright. Uh, but anyway, that's how it happened.
0: That's the short. And Jeff, looking now, and I, I, there's a lot of talk about birthright because of the the, the shifts in funding and the Adelson money or, or otherwise. What, what, where where are we right now? What sort of report card would you give birthright in terms of these measurables? Has it has it delivered on its promise? Would you what what grade would you give it? Um, and what do you think the next um, birthright is, or or? or where, where's your hat on it?
2: You know, it, it has more than delivered on a promise. Um, the the evaluation results um, are quite amazing. Um, 91% of participants say the trip changed their lives. When you look at everything from in marriage to raising your children from a Jewish perspective, the the differences are dramatic between those who go on a trip and those who applied to go on a trip and didn't go. So it's, we we have perfect control groups from the scientific perspective. Um, the, um, the financial challenge is since the pandemic, costs have gone up dramatically. So instead of it being a $3,500 trip, it's a $4,500 trip. Um, and, um, The uh, Adelson Foundation, um, in a desire to see more people involved, um, has reduced its support. Adelson Foundation deserves enormous credit. They have given close to $500 million since they began the relationship with Birthright. I don't think there's a gift in Jewish history that comes close to that amount. and right now, there are about 33,000 donors to Birthright. That needs to increase dramatically. And the Birthright Foundation, which is the American arm that, that does the fundraising, um, just hired a spectacular...
0: Starting this uh, fall, I
2: think. Starting this fall, a spectacular CEO who, whose story is, is amazing because in September of 1999, he was in college, applied to go on the birthright trip, uh, was turned down, was put on the waiting list. Hmm. In December, the Hillel director on his campus called him and said, do you have a passport? And he said, yes. He said, in six days, you're going to leave for Israel on birthright. Hmm. And not surprisingly, that trip changed his life. He came back and changed his major. He was determined to spend his life working in behalf of Israel and the Jewish people. He went to work for APAC as a, a political analyst, yeah. and has stayed in APAC for 22 years, and um, and now, you know, he's he, he is coming home. The birthright. Remind me
0: his name. His name is? um,
2: Elias Adarovsky.
0: Okay. Well, hopefully it's not long before we have him at the synagogue or on uh, Park Avenue podcast. I know we have many people who are very engaged with the mission of birthright uh, here at Park Avenue. Um, Charles, I want to ask you, um, uh, uh, maybe there's a little chutzpah to this question, but um, as rabbi to philanthropist, and I'm not your rabbi, um, though you never know. Um, the, uh, you talk about passions and leveraging passions, um, and, and that philanthropy should bring joy to the donor and it reflects the interests of the donor. All right. That's all nice and well, but say as a Jewish communal professional, and I could give any number of example, say you're very interested in birthright. And I'm worried about the skyrocketing costs of Jewish education. Or you're very interested in what's going on, um, say, with uh, um, Jews of the former Soviet Union. But I'm very interested in um, feeding the hungry here, right? And and so so how? And and I approach you. I, I've never approached you, but but let's just use you as an example. I'm sure you get pitched all the time, um, and someone says, this is a critical need of the Jewish community. And you say, well, my passions are actually with birthright or with Holocaust education or with any number of things. And so you have this gap between the people who are serving the Jewish community and the philanthropists who would like to see their passions or generational, maybe something that was important to your father of blessed memory. How how do we negotiate this gap?
1: Well, first we see the exact gap. There's no negotiation. Uh, We just say, it's been nice knowing you, or let's go have a drink sometime. (laughs) But normally, uh, what people do is they have their passionate Uh, things, the things they really, really want to do that speaks to the heart. Secondly, they'll have uh, a group of uh, philanthropies that they have to do as good citizens, whether it's UJA or whether it's the synagogue or whether it's uh, uh, Red Feather or United Way or what have you. Uh, That's good citizenship. And lastly, there's always a space for uh, people who are being honored at dinners, who are friends, and you got to give something to that. So we, we have our uh, areas of budgeting. So if I happen to like you and you happen to like me, and you come visit me on uh, what you just said, uh, I would find a way to give you at least a token, so you can say that I was a contributor, if that's important to you. Uh, that's normally how it's done.
0: I mean, I I could tell you, I'm sure you could tell me far more stories from your vantage point. And and thank you, Charles, for the very gracious response. When I'll have people in my synagogue, well-to-do congregants, who will say, Rabbi, I mean, they'll literally walk into my office, uh, whether it's an honor of a wedding or maybe they're just philanthropic or they need to make a donation. I'd like to give to the synagogue, but I want to give to inclusion or music, or, you know, they, they want to give to a certain um, passion of theirs, all of which is laudable, um, but I need someone to pay air conditioning and healthcare costs, and, and, and so my youth director can get a, a livable wage. So, Jeff, tell me from your vantage point, right? And you see it from both sides. You, 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 you work very closely with, with Charles and the Bronfen Foundation, but you also know the lived life of Jewish communal professionals who are, who are just trying to... How, what's your take on, on, on this? I don't want to call it attention, tension, but this uh, alight, seeking to align um, the various parties. You
2: know, it's interesting. That's among the reasons we wrote this book. Um, typically, um, people spend their adult lives making the money, and they they learn. They learn by experience. They learn from school. They they don't learn about how to, how to give it away, both effectively and ethically. Um, and one of the arguments we make in the book is that the the best gift. Is the unrestricted gift, the gift that basically says to the organization, or in the case we're talking about, says to, to Park Avenue Synagogue, we trust you. That's why we're giving you money. You know better than we do where the money is needed to fulfill your mission. And um, and the you know the challenge is trying to continue to educate donors to that. Um, you know, uh, uh, the, the, uh, an example we use is is the donor who says, "You know, I'm going to give you this hundred thousand dollars, but not one dime for overhead." And right. you know that same donor doesn't walk into Starbucks and say, "Oh, here's the five fifty for the cappuccino," but I'm taking fifty cents off because I'm not going to pay your rent. It's it's just a ludicrous concept. People have to understand. That eleemosynary organizations have the same dynamics as other businesses, except they're turning what would be profits into doing more and more good.
0: Right. Right. And look, I, I'm going through a million conversations like that that I've had. And it's actually, again, something they don't um, teach you in rabbinical school of how to. Um, sort of do jujitsu on that person walking into your office that you want to be gracious you want to express gratitude you never want to walk away from someone's generosity but at the same time you have overhead and um and so it's it, but it is an art it's not it's not a science um Charles you what what, what does a future hold um from the perspective of centralized giving and, and, you know, in this conversation we're having and that what, given what Jeff just said, um, that, you know, the, are, are more people giving out of their foundations or are people continuing to give to the, the federations, the JFNAs, the centralized? What, 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 are, what are the trends we're seeing and, and what do you think the future holds? Well,
1: the trend uh, in, in the federations, from what I know, is that the split between local and international, particularly Israel, has changed dramatically. Uh, in and it should have. Israel is now a very wealthy country. They have many millionaires and quite a few billionaires. And frankly, they can take care of their own fundamental needs. And I believe that now, and Jeff who gives the numbers asked, uh, Federations don't give that much to Israel anymore, maybe 15 to 20% of, of their uh, revenue, uh, when it used to be 50%. Uh, right. People now give a lot of their uh, available uh, 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 donation dollars to universities, to hospitals, and uh, things where they can put their name on something. One of the problems we have in birthright is we don't have naming opportunities very very often. And that hurts because if you put your name on a bus, say it's the Elliot Cosgrove bus, hey, that's nice. And what a lot of people love to do is give to uh, institutions and have a name on it. And all of a sudden, you say, well, I can go to the Weissman Institute and see a professor, a scientist. He's got my name, so I can go over with him. It's a wonderful
0: feeling. Right. You know, the question always is, what benefits does somebody have? Right. Right. So so you mentioned Israel. Um, so I'm not sure when this podcast will actually drop, but I imagine Israel won't have resolved all of their questions that they're facing during this hot summer. Um, uh, the protests are on the street. Our, our hearts and concern are there. And yet we're diaspora Jews. Is there a role, and you've written publicly on this and in a forthright way, is there a role that diaspora Jewry philanthropically should be playing vis-a-vis what's going on in Israel right now? Well, I know
1: that some people are very upset and they say, well, we're not gonna do our funding that we used to do to Israel. Uh, And I think the people who have to be aware that they're not funding an institution They're funding Israeli people, our cousins, and that they should not take out their anger against the government of Israel by denying funds to the people of Israel. I think that's two different things, same thing as in our country. You might not like the government of, say, the state of New York, but you're not going to deny the people of New York your love and affection and dollars.
0: Thank you. And Jeff, um, question for you. Do you see, um, what do you see the coming generation in terms of their philanthropic uh, giving? And what, what, what counsel what counsel do you have for me as, uh, as a way to engage that, you know, I, I read that, you know, an older generation is giving and asked to give more and the younger generation is less engaged, whether it's um, uh, communal giving, centralized giving or otherwise um uh, wh- where do you see the generational question on philanthropy?
2: You know, if there's one thing that I've learned over the years is um, if you've seen one donor, you've seen one donor. Um, it's really challenging to try to generalize to a family, to a, a foundation living or deceased. Um, and I think the, the good news, about the the emerging generation of philanthropists is number one, they're more data-driven and are likely to be more effective as philanthropists. Number two, um, they wish to be more involved. They're they're not a check-writing generation. Right. They, they, they want to be engaged, um, and, um, and that's a positive thing. And um, finally, I think um, so many of them are, um, are very entrepreneurial, and that entrepreneurial behavior in the not-for-profit world will be very helpful. If, if if I look at the three generations of Jewish leadership um, that I've worked with and observed, the first generation were the entrepreneurs who built those businesses and built those fortunes. And they came to the table, not only with money and generosity, but resources other than money. You know, I, the, the, your, their attorney would work for the nonprofit on a pro bono basis, whether she wanted to or didn't want to. Uh, that was the nature of the relationship. They they understood the difference between governance and management, and they let managers manage. In many ways, many of their children became FIFA service professionals, attorneys and accountants and didn't have the same dynamic. And that was a a period of time that I think Jewish communal life was was much more challenging um, because they didn't bring as much money to the table. They didn't have resources and they didn't know how to work with professional management. And the Jewish community became much more process oriented. They had time. They were tired of 25 years of real estate law. So if 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 they could hang out with Rabbi Cosgrove at Park Avenue Synagogue, right. that gave them an excuse to be away from their office and their partners wouldn't scream about that. And now their children, this third generation, has reverted back to what their grandparents were like.
0: Interesting. All right, so it's come uh, come all the way back. Um, well, I'm gonna think about that one and play it out in the my own congregational life. Charles, I'm gonna give you the, the final question because we're out of time. What is, I always try to ask a fun question at the end or a chutzpah question, what is your greatest philanthropic fumble and what are you most proud of that you say, I couldn't even predict this, but boy, did I get it right on that one. So you can end with the positive, but I'm curious, what what is your greatest philanthropic fumble? Well,
1: actually, there were two. Uh, The one that I talked about at the beginning when we spent, I think it was a grand total of $18 million, which was a hell of a lot of money uh, on trying to increase the uh, Jewish presence in youth trips to Israel that nobody else wanted except us. Uh, But there was another time when we just started the foundation, Uh, there was, we were living in Montreal, there was a separatist movement. And I was, of course, way against it and very vocal I got in lots of trouble being uh, politically being against it but uh, we hired people and we hired this one woman who I found out was a separatist and I said what the hell have we done how could we do that so she was gone but she'd already done damage
0: uh, mm-hmm.
1: the most the thing I'm most proud of of course is uh, birthright and, and I think the second thing I'm probably most uh, happy about is Jeff Solomon. Jeff came on board. Uh, he didn't come on board as an employee, he came on board as a partner. And we've had a partnership and with my late wife, Andy, too, for these 26 years. Or as I said earlier, we finished each other's sentences. We know what the other one wants. We know whose skill, skill sets are what.
0: And it's just been a marvelous, marvelous journey. Well, thank you. And well, Charles, we we share our affection and esteem for Jeff Solomon. And uh, Jeff, it is wonderful to see you, Charles. Thank you so much for making the time for this conversation. Thank you to everyone for being part of Park Avenue Synagogue podcast with two people who have shaped not just philanthropic life but Jewish communal life in our time. Um, and we are stronger and better for it. And and I think it really prompts us all um, by way of their work, by way of the book, The Art of Giving, Where the Soul Meets a Business Plan by Charles Bromphan and Jeffrey Solomon to really think intentionally um, with passion and with concern um, for the Jewish people and the future of our people. Thank you gentlemen for being part of this conversation.
1: Thank you for everything. Thank you.
0: thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out pasyn.org. See you in shul.